Now for the next presentation, I feel we've been introduced to Philip three times already today. We have here the contribution from a professional author um, who has focused on our industry. And he started as a humble library assistant a long time ago and progressed rapidly through the uh, journal industry, becoming production editor of Flight International. And he's continued to be a regular contributor to many different uh, publications, including regular contributions to Aerospace Monthly. And you're going to be talking about the right influence in Europe. Good afternoon. We're going to change tack a little here now. Um, Wilburite's first demonstrations in France in the autumn and winter of 1908. In this paper, Wilbur described the work with the 1900-1901 glider, making specific reference to the use of wing warping for control in rolls. Ferber, who had been experimenting with Lilienfeld-type hang gliders, was immediately convinced that the Wrights were on the right track to achieve powered flight. He quickly built and tested a Wright-type glider based on their 1901 machine. Unfortunately, it was a very crude effort with the fabric of the single-surface wings billowing between the spars. Although it had the forward elevator and lack of tail surfaces that were features of the Wright's glider, it lacked the all-important wing warping or any other means of exercising control in roll. In February 1903, the magazine Le published an article by Ferber urging a revival of aviation in Europe, and four of the accompanying illustrations depicted his own Wright-type gliders. This was followed, early in April, by Chanute presenting an illustrated lecture at a dîner conference of the Aero Club de France in Paris on April the 2nd. Speaking in French, Chanute addressed a distinguished audience of rich patrons of aeronautics, describing the Wright's successes with their 1902 glider. Illustrated accounts of his lecture were published in La Locomotion and L'Airfield that same month, though they both published the same four pictures of the tailless 1901 glider and not the modified 1902 glider with its rear rudder and link warp and rudder three-axis control system that made controlled flight possible. Moreover, owing to misunderstandings, the glider was described as being of the Chanute type, and Chanute does not seem to have understood the basic principles of the right control system. Though he did refer to the simultaneous use of wing warping and rudder, he did not reveal its true function or the means by which it was accomplished. Even so, enough was revealed to set the European experimenters into action, but they failed to grasp the need for lateral control or to undertake sufficient glider tests to enable them to understand the significance and necessity of proper lateral control. Ferber then urged Ernst Archdecken, a wealthy Paris lawyer and patron of flying who had attended Chanute's lecture, to get, to, to get the Aero Club to offer a prize for gliders, saying, the aeroplane must not be allowed to reach successful achievement in America. Archdecken was thus inspired to inaugurate a crusade in rivalry to the Wrights, whose example had indirectly stirred him into action. He wasted no time, 
and an aviation committee of the Aero Club was formed in May 1903, though the initial idea of a glider competition fell by the wayside. In its August 1903 issue, Learafield published an article by Chanute on aerial navigation in the United States. In this article, Chanute presented the readers with a three-view general arrangement drawing and a clear photograph of the 1902 Wright glider and gave an inspiring account of the brothers' achievements. He stated that the time was near when, having solved the problems of equilibrium and control, it would be possible to apply a motor and propeller. This clear delineation of priorities, mastering control before applying power, was to be sadly ignored by European experimenters for another five years. Again, Chanute did not reveal the Wright's control system either in the diagrams or the text, perhaps because he was aware that they were applying for a patent. And again, the Europeans failed to grasp the need for control in role or to undertake a proper programme of glider trials that would have forced them to tackle the control problem. On the 30th of November 1903, a second major article by Chanute was published in France this time in the Revue Générale des Sciences. Entitled L'Aviation en Amérique, it filled ten pages and included ten illustrations of the Wright's number three glider of 1902. Almost half the text was devoted to the brothers' work, but it is evident that Chanute really did not understand the functioning of their control system, and he also led his readers to believe that they had taken up the work at his instigation and that their gliders were improved versions of his own machines. Neither of the latter remarks was true. However, Chanute gave good descriptions of the right gliders, especially the number three, and praised their performance, which he said marked a great advance on all earlier experiments. Most importantly, he stressed the need to develop a fully controllable glider before attempting to apply power. History records that just over a fortnight after this article was published, the Wrights made the world's first powered, sustained and controlled flight in their flyer, which, in modern parlance, might fairly be regarded as a proof-of-concept vehicle. As Chanute remarked in an address to the American Association for the Advancement of Science on December 30, 1903, they had obtained almost complete mastery over their apparatus before they ventured to add the motor and propeller. This is the only course of training by which others may hope to accomplish success. At this point, I must digress to express my astonishment that the work of the Wrights was virtually ignored by the Aeronautical Society of Great Britain during these early years. Although Wilbur's short paper, Angle of Incidents, had been published in the July 1901 issue of the Society's Aeronautical Journal, his classic paper, Some Aeronautical Experiments, was not even mentioned in the journal's listings of foreign periodicals or notable articles, let alone published. It was not until April 1904 that an account of their experiments was published in the journal. Although the paper was published in England, as a four-part series of articles in the quarterly magazine Flying from March 1902 to January 1903, the illustrations, comprising small line drawings, 
made from, a, made from the original photographs, were poor and of little use. Moreover, it appears to have inspired nobody into action. It seems extraordinary that such a significant paper on heavier-than-air flight passed virtually unnoticed by British experimenters, especially the members of the ASGB. But, as this time, but at this time, British aviation was in a pitiful state of inertia, with little fruitful activity in evidence. Although the initial reports of the December 17th flights published in the French press were misleading, a full and accurate account of the events of that day, issued by the Wrights early in January 1904, was published in that month's issue of Lirafield, accompanied by rather cautious comments from the editor. Chanute sent a copy of the Wright's account to Ferber, who subsequently wrote, The date of December 17, 1903, marks the day when a piloted machine has really flown, and the honour of this memorable experiment falls to the name of Wright. Others, however, like Victor Tatin, were sceptical of the Wright's claims and could not bear the thought that a Frenchman should merely copy an American design or that they could possibly have been beaten to powered flight by the Americans. On the other hand, Archdeacon acknowledged the enormous advance made by the Americans and urged the French to catch up. His own biplane glider, Type Wright 1902, had been built at the military establishment at chalet Meudon, and he continued to push for gliding competitions to encourage the French experimenters. In March 1904, it was announced that both Henri Deutsch de la Meurthe and Archdeacon had each offered a Grand Prix of 25,000 francs to whomsoever was the first to fly a kilometre circle in a powered aeroplane. Ferber, who had access to more reliable information on the Wright's aeroplanes than anyone else in Europe, still apparently failed to comprehend the operation or value of lateral control. Even so, in the March 1904 issue of the Revue d'Artillerie, he complained that French pioneers during three years have not been able to achieve a flight because we have not known how to manage our machines. Now, at this hour, he exhorted his readers, there is not an instant to lose, and that is why we advise people temporarily to follow the track cleared by the rights. During the first half of April, Archdeacon's right-type glider was tested. Although its owner described it as being exactly copied from that of the Wright brothers, it bore only a superficial resemblance to the craft on which it was supposedly based, largely owing to over-reliance on inaccurate descriptions and drawings rather than a close scrutiny of photographs. Its span, wing area and weight were reduced, its wing camber was greatly increased and it had no means for exercising control in roll. These brief trials saw the first serious involvement in aviation of Gabriel Voisin, who was engaged as the pilot. After being thrown out and bruised, the courageous young man was advised by Ferber, who also flew the machine. It made only a few short glides, the best of which covered some 20 metres, before Archdeacon abandoned the experiments, announcing his intention to build a new glider. In fact, 
the glider would not emerge until March 1905 and it proved a failure. No European glider of this period came anywhere near the performance of the Wright's 1902 machine and when Archdeacon's first trials were ended the brothers were in the throes of designing their second powered aeroplane. In May 1904, inspired by Archdeacon's efforts, engineer Robert Esnaud Peltry tested his own exact copy of a Wright glider. Again, it was a poor effort, though it was better than Archdeacon's, and a failure. However, its creator did modify it to have the first ailerons come elevate elevons. Thus, the influence of the Wrights at this early stage had two contrary effects. Importantly, it spurred the French into belated but rather slapdash action. Then, because the French efforts to emulate their success were so poor, it began to breed scepticism. Because they could not begin to approach the performance figures claimed by the Wrights, some of the French experimenters started to question those claims. In October 1904, the Wrights' influence on British aviation was begun when Colonel J.E. Kappa, the officer commanding the balloon companies of the British Army, visited the brothers on his own initiative on the 23rd of October and was privileged to be shown photographs and performance data and also their engine. Later, Kappa provided SF Cowdery, Colonel Cody, with much information to assist him in the creation of British Army Aeroplane No. 1. It might be worth observing here that while Kappa, an engineer, was able to comprehend the technicalities of the Wright machines, some of the French imitators, such as Voisin and Delagrange, came from artistic backgrounds. This might well be the reason that their machines were copies only in a superficial sense, based entirely on uninformed external observation. In 1905, the year that the Wrights produced and flew their Flyer 3, the first practical powered aeroplane in history, the best the Europeans did was to make toad tests of the Voisin Archdeacon and Voisin Blériot float gliders, which married Wright glider configuration with the Wenham Hargrave box kite structure. Although these machines were the archetypes for the later Voisin biplanes, they achieved nothing. In October, the Wrights sent further details of their latest successes, which included a flight of 39 minutes, 23 seconds duration on the 5th of October, watched by 15 witnesses that covered nearly 39 kilometres and was ended only by fuel exhaustion. When the paltry state of European aviation at this time is borne in mind, it is not surprising to find that these accounts met a wall of incredulity. So public had the Wright's flights become that they now had to discontinue their experiments for fearing of revealing too much. However, they sent a detailed letter to the editor of Lerafield and this was published in January 1906 following a long investigative article in the December 1905 issue. This compounded the Europeans' incredulity but the Wright's invited the French technical press to send representatives to Dayton to question witnesses. This they did, and although they were not allowed to see the aeroplane, they reported that it was impossible 
to doubt the Wright's success. While authoritative journals in England accepted the Wright's claims, the resentful French simply blocked out the hard truths assailing their ears and eyes and increased their blind scepticism. The Wright's achievement did, however, stir another European pioneer into action. Early in January 1906, the great French domicile Brazilian pioneer of airships, Alberto Santos Dumont, became the first person to enter for the 50,000 franc Grand Prix, even though he had yet to build an aeroplane. The aeroplane that eventually materialised sprung into being without any preliminary aerodynamic research or glider trials. It was an inelegant attempt to combine the basic canard right configuration with a Hargrave-type box-kite structure. The only pre-flight tests were made by suspending it from a pulley running on a wire and towing it by donkey power, and then by suspending it beneath Santos Dumont's number 14 airship in July 1906. The latter trials led to the aircraft being designated number 14 Beast. There it is. There's a very well-known faked photograph which appears to show it about 60 foot up. But if you look at the treetops, you can see this, that there's somebody the brush has been meddling around with things. Santos Dumont's limited achievements in this cumbersome piece of machinery have been greatly exaggerated, largely owing to the ignorance of those who witnessed the events. It has to be remembered that nobody in Europe had seen anyone accomplish any more than the merest of uncontrolled hops in a powered aeroplane. Therefore, anyone who left the ground and managed to remain aloft for a short distance, regardless of whether the machine was controllable or not, was destined to be fated. There was still no conception of three-axis control, and even Europe's foremost aviation authorities and experimenters had only the most basic grasp of the subject. So when, on October the 23rd, Santos managed to hop about 60 metres, 197 feet, before a wildly enthusiastic crowd, he was acclaimed, awarded the Coupe Archdeacon for the first person to, to traverse 25 metres, and banqueted. On November the 12th, after fitting ailerons, which aren't seen here, operated by a body harness, he won the Aero Club 1500 franc prize for the first 100 metre flight by making a hop flight of 220 metres. So, by the end of 1906, despite all the information that they could have gleaned on the Wright aeroplanes, the Europeans had failed to remain aloft for even half the time of the Wright's best flight of December 17, 1903, or to cover the same distance over the ground. And they were very far indeed from achieving the performance and controllability of the Flyer 3 of 1905. Ironically, Although the work of the Wrights had inspired French experimenters into renewed activity, the Wrights themselves had not flown at all in 1906 and were not to do so again until May the 6th, 1908. Aware of what they had achieved and that others were anxious to discover their secrets, they decided to lie low and endeavour to reach a business agreement for the sale of their aircraft. However, during 1906 and 1907, they built some half-dozen improved engines and three two-seat biplanes of their finalised design, nowadays described as the Type A. 
One of these was shipped to France in July 1907 and stored pending a manufacturing agreement. While the Wrights remained earthbound and preoccupied with negotiations in the USA and Europe, the European pioneers continued experimenting. During 1907, Louis Blériot experimented with a variety of monoplanes with small success, and the Voisin brothers embarked on production of their first box kite biplanes, the third of which was sold to Henry Farman. Farman improved his Voisin biplane until, on October 26, he won the Archdeacon Cup with a flight of 771 metres in 52 and 3 fifths seconds. He made turns in November, and then, on the 9th, he flew an unofficial circle of about 1,030 metres. This flight, which lasted 1 minute 14 seconds, was the first flight in Europe of greater duration than the Wright's 59-second flight of December 17, 1903. It had taken the Europeans five and a half years to reach this stage, and they still neglected lateral control and failed to see it as a positive means of manoeuvre as well as a corrective function. European aviation got off to what appeared to be a good start in 1908, with Farman making the first official kilometre circular flight in Europe on January the 13th. This won him the 50,000 franc Deutsche Archdecken prize, though, owing to the lack of ailerons on his Voisin Farman 1 modified biplane, he had to make as wide a circle as possible to minimise the danger of stalling, side-slipping or rolling into the ground. Farman was to make many flights in this machine, which he continued to modify and improve, and on July the 6th exceeded 15 minutes duration. The only other pilot to make good flights in 1908 was Léon Delagrange in his Voisin Delagrange biplane. Both Blériot and Léon Levavasseur made progress with monoplanes, the latter being the forerunners of the elegant Antoinette monoplanes of succeeding years. Another Wright-inspired pioneer was Elliot Verdon Rowe in England, who, following trials with large model gliders and rubber-powered aeroplanes, began tests of a rudderless Wright-inspired biplane with a canard forward control surface. By the summer of 1908, the expatriate American S.F. Cowdery Cody, as I mentioned before, working at Farnborough, had completed British Army Aeroplane No. 1, another machine displaying distinct right influence, though Cody later denied this. Then, in February 1908, the Wrights signed a contract with the US Army. This was followed in March with a contract with the Lazare Vela Syndicate in France, the Compagnie Générale de Navigation Aérienne and it was decided that Wilbur would travel to France to demonstrate the Flyer A already waiting there. The Wrights first gave themselves a refresher course on the 1905 Flyer, now modified to carry two in upright seating, like the Flyer A's. The 20 or so flights they made at Kildevil Hills in May included the world's first two passenger flights. Later that same month, Wilbur arrived in France and assembled the Flyer in Léon Bollet's factory at Le Mans. Needless to say, on the day he was due to make his first flight, August the 8th, there were many impatient and critical spectators on hand at the Anordier racecourse to see what the bluffers could do. 
Wilbur made a brief test flight to check the machine. It lasted a mere 1 minute and 45 seconds and comprised two graceful circles at an average height of about 30 feet. But the witnesses were astounded and the press went mad. No one in Europe had ever conceived of an aeroplane being handled with such complete mastery, making elegant circles with consummate ease and under the full control of its pilot. The French pioneers were unstinting in their praise. A new era in mechanical flight has commenced, exclaimed Blériot. It is marvellous. The special correspondent for the British magazine Motor wrote, Yesterday, the most important demonstration of flying ever seen in France was given on the Hernandier race course by Wilbur Wright. The distance covered was not great, probably not much more than a mile, and the time aloft did not exceed a minute and a half. But in that short space of time, Wilbur Wright gave such a demonstration that the exclamation of everybody present, and the number included many recognised experts, was, this man can fly like a bird. Describing the flight, the reporter wrote, within 50 yards of the starting line, the aeroplane had risen to a height of 40 feet, and had made a sharp turn in order to describe a circle round the race course. All doubt as to the ability of the Wright brothers to fly was dispelled in an instant. The mechanical bird swung round in a way that has never been done by any machine at Issy, the French flying ground, heeled over in a manner that made the spectators hold their breath with fear, then shout with enthusiasm as it straightened out again. As if to show what perfect mastery he had over the air, Wilbur Wright grazed the pine trees on the outskirts of the ground, flew over the grandstand, on which a few hundred spectators had gathered, passed over his own shed, and commenced the second round from the point where the first had been begun. There were few who were prepared for a successful flight. There were more who anticipated a repetition of the early efforts of Farman and Delagrange. There were not a few who looked for a dismal failure. So complete was the victory that the men who but a few months ago were publicly sneering at the Americans as bluffers were carried away with enthusiasm and were dancing with excitement before the apparatus came back to earth. Wilburite descended at the end of the second round. As he neared his starting point, he stopped the engine by cutting out the ignition and gently settled down, so gently indeed that the two skates on the under portion of the apparatus barely left their impress on the ground. Immediately the crowd rushed towards him with congratulations, wild cries and cheers. Had he been a Frenchman, he would doubtless have been kissed all over and carried in triumph all round the ground. But Wilbur Wright is essentially Yankee, without a lack of sentimentality in his character, and his first action was to push aside the crowd and attend to the wheeling of his machine into the shed. Somebody asked him if he was satisfied. No, he replied, almost without looking up and without stopping his work. I made at least ten mistakes through being out of practice. What the mistakes were, nobody but Mr Wright knows. For the spectators, the brief performance appeared perfect. It was noticed that while the machine was turning, the wings were twisted, a special system of pivoting being provided to allow for this. 
and that the whole apparatus heeled over much the same, same way as a bicycle on a bank track. An interesting allusion, I think. To quote historian Richard K. Smith, the eighth day of the eighth month of the eighth year of the 20th century framed Wilbur's moment, but it was the Wright brothers' finest hour. Wilbur made eight flights between August the 8th and the 13th, the longest lasting eight minutes. After two short flights on the 10th, Wilbur wrote to Orville, the newspapers and the French aviators nearly went wild with excitement. Blériot and Delagrange were so excited they could scarcely speak, and Caffre could only gasp and not talk at all. Delagrange exclaimed, well, we are beaten, we just don't exist. Wilbur then moved to La Comte d'Auvert, military ground where he made more than 100 flights, more than 60 with passengers, and spent a total of 25 and a half hours in the air from August the 21st to December 31st. People queued up to help pull the weight up the tower, very dignified. Lord Northcliffe is seen in photographs wearing a very large fur coat, helping to pull the weight up the tower. Obviously regarded as a, a deed of honour. On the last day of the year, Wilbur made a flight of 2 hours, 18 minutes and 33 seconds duration, covering 77 and a half miles and winning the Coupe Michelin and 20,000 francs for the longest flight of the year. After the last flights at Enordier, leading aviation journalist Francois Perret said that the demonstrations proved over and over again that Wilbur and Orville Wright have long mastered the art of artificial flight. The man, and this has to be recognised, wrote Delagrange in L'Illustration, is well and truly the father of aviation. Let those who have doubted him bow low and make honourable amends. But then patriotic pride took hold and he drew back from his earlier admission of defeat, saying, are we beaten? Should we acknowledge the defeat which is already being talked about? Not at all. On the contrary, in many respects we are well ahead. Delagrange was, was not alone in this reversal. Blériot, clearly forgetting his initial dumbstruck amazement, now asserted that the right machine possessed only a momentary superiority. They already seem to have forgotten that the initial impetus that set them experimenting in the first place came from the right gliders. Henri Farman was the exception. He would observe and learn from the rights and make impressive strides. The patriotic Gabriel Voisin found the pill altogether too bitter to swallow, and though he himself had first taken to the air in a crude copy of a right glider, he would never give the Americans due acknowledgement of their accomplishments and influence in Europe. On January the 14th, 1909, Wilbur moved to Pau in the south of France, where, joined by Orville and his sister Catherine, he completed the training of three French pilots. Italian business magnate Giovanni Perelli, who had been given a passenger flight at Le Mans, had offered a contract worth $10,000 for a series of demonstration flights in Rome and the training of two Italian pilots, one from the Navy and one from the Army. So, after making his final flight at Poe on March 23, Wilbur handed the aeroplane over to the CGNA and a new machine was sent to the Eternal City. Flying from the open plain at Centicelli, some 12 miles from Rome, Wilbur again generated great excitement. From April 15th to April 27th, 
He had made more than 50 flights, mostly for training. There were only three days on which he did not fly. These pictures were taken from a tethered balloon by Hart O'Berg, who was um, an agent working with the Wrights. Quite outstanding. There it is on the uh, catapult, ready to go. And there it is, in flight, low over the ground. Not very good pictures, but rather unusual. On May the 2nd, the Wrights arrived in London on their way home, and during a two-day stopover visited the Short Brothers factory at Battersea and concluded the subcontract deal, which will be described by Gordon Bruce. After a few months back in the USA, Orville and Catherine travelled to Berlin towards the end of August. At Poe in January, Captain Alfred Hildebrandt, a German officer and an aeronautical writer, had approached Wilbur on behalf of the local Anzeiger, or Anziger, sorry, a Berlin newspaper, and offered a substantial sum for exhibition flights in the German capital. Orville was to fulfil the contract and also to train a pilot for the German Wright Company, the Flugmaschine Wright GmbH. He was tempted to fly in the Rams meeting in September, but business came first. Nonetheless, his 19 flights at Tempelhof, Berlin, during August the 30th to September the 18th, for the local Onziga, attracted crowds as big as those at Rams, sometimes numbering as many as 200,000 people. He then made 16 flights at Bornstedt, Potsdam, during September 29th to October 15, to train the German officers. And on October the 2nd, Crown Prince Friedrich Wilhelm became the first member of any royal family to fly. During this time in Germany, Orville also recaptured the world records for duration, duration with a passenger, and altitude that the brothers had held not long before. Although the Wrights themselves did not fly in Russia, Wilbur's flights in France in 1908 helped to give impetus to the interest in aviation in that country. Although not a single Russian flew in 1909, some 50 became pilots in 1910. At the Week of Aviation, organised by the All-Russian Aero Club, held in St. Petersburg from April 25th to May 2nd, 1910, the international field of entrance included a Wright biplane flown by the Russian pilot Nicholas E. Popov, French pilot's brevet number 50, who achieved the greatest altitude and flight duration. After this event, Popov and a fellow competitor, Edmund, were invited by the Military Aeronautic Park to teach officers to fly. It is obvious from the foregoing that the influence of the Wright brothers on the early development of practical aviation in Europe was profound. Moreover, it began well before the brothers' first powered flights on December 17, 1903, and continued into 1910. By that time, however, as well as trying to keep tabs on their European business interests, the Wrights had become embroiled in patent actions in both Europe and the USA, defending their patented three-axis control system from infringers who sought to reap rewards without paying their dues. As a pioneering patent, the Wright patent was allowed broad interpretation so that any control system that worked on the same principle, whether it employed wing warping or ailerons, could be regarded as infringing the patent. Between 1909 and 1912, the Wrights became engaged in some three dozen infringement suits brought against manufacturers, exhibition pilots and promoters. They won them all, but it cost them dearly in time and energy. 
Consequently, the Wright aeroplane developed little beyond 1910 and became something of an anachronism. Worst of all, there can be little doubt that the strain on Wilbur, who shouldered most of the patent defence work, was a deciding factor when he contracted typhoid fever in 1912 and weakened him to the point that he finally succumbed, aged 45, on May the 30th. Thank you very much. Thank you, Phil, for talk which was at times exciting, at times devastating, and at times quite sobering, um, with lessons resonating around what's going on in the world today. And uh, perhaps we could have a couple of questions. Sure. Thank you. Any questions before we go to tea? Question back here. Had no mention made of the progress made with the engines. The Wrights, of course, designed their own engine. They appear to have a high degree of reliability. Is this true? Could you mention your name, please? I'm sorry, Jim Blewett, uh, retired MOD. Yes, the Wright engines, uh, obviously, I mean, from 1905, when they could stay up as, until the fuel ran out, were obviously perfectly reliable. They did have some trouble when they contracted for Bollet to build some in France, and they'd had some problems initially with the French-built engines, or essentially Wright engines built under licence. But uh, their own engines don't seem to have, they seem to have worked very efficiently and very well. Fascinating reliability. Michel Harvey? Yeah, who my remark was about the engine, too. Uh, uh, well, I, I wanted to emphasize the fact that the first when they came to France, they asked a firm, Barricot Emar, to improve their engine, to repair the engine first and to improve it. And they were very much displeased, displeased with the the result. Yeah. But eventually, they, it came that they agreed upon a new engine made by Barry Coimar during the trip in Europe. And all the demonstrations were done with a, an engine made by Barry Coimar. And there were about 100 engines produced, and all the flights in Europe were done with this engine. Yes, thank you very much for the contribution. Um, the, the other frustrating story, of course, is that the aeroplane that they had in storage from 1907, um, when Wilbur got over there and opened the crate, the thing was in a dreadful state. It had been dreadfully knocked about. And he wrote a, a, dread, a, a letter to uh, Orville telling him off for not packing it properly. And Orville wrote back and said, I packed it perfectly well. So it seems that maybe Customs or somebody had looked into this case and seen all this... Um, collection of woodwork and things just pulled it about or something. Uh, nobody really knows what happened to that aeroplane, but it took them some time to... This is written in the letter you can find in mm. the white paper. Yes. yes. Ob obviously sabotage. <laughs> well. <laughs> um, Michel Harvey, I should point out, visiting from France for today, as not only a retired senior executive of SNECMA, but he's currently an external non-exec director of Messier Doughty UK. Question back there? Thank you. It's Peter Davison from the Science Museum. Um, we've had a number of uh, commentators contacting the museum who have different opinions about the rights lawsuits, and naturally they aren't covered in detail in most of the praising documents about the right uh, history. Um, you've touched on it, so uh, you're perhaps the person to answer the question. 
Um, my feeling has always been that they made sufficient money from demonstrations um, and training and contracts um, not to need extra income, but do you think their lawsuits um, were driven by financial um, aspirations or by a protection of pride um, or scientific um, aspirations? I'd just like your opinion. I don't think it was really any of those. I think it was simply that, as inventors, they, they had certain rights and entitlements, and uh, they, there is no doubt that, that various people, Curtis included, um, were, were infringing the patents, and therefore the rights had to pursue them in the courts, because if they hadn't done, um, anyone could have um, infringed all the time, and if they knew they would get away with it, they'd just do it. Um, they had they they made a fair income from it from uh, business arrangements and things like that. They would like to have carried on experimenting and flying, but effectively the the fighting of patent battles just effectively put an end to any chance of doing that. Next question. It's a question down here. As we can see from that, in 1910, already the only people making money from aviation were the lawyers. <laughs> Uh, Darrell Penhow. <coughs> I noticed that uh, in your talk, uh, Philip, that uh, you seem to illustrate that the French had gone from nothing to quite good um, f flights, like Voison with his one minute plus. What was the factor, or what were the factors that made it possible for them to go from nothing to competence? Well, it's not so much Wazan as Farman who, who really made strides. And Farman was, um, Farman took the Wazan aeroplane and turned it into a practical aeroplane. Uh, Delagrange and several people struggled around with the big old Wazans with the big side curtains and uh, no lateral control for quite a long time. But they really weren't going anywhere with those. They, they learnt to sort of make tentative flights and they could even make very wide turns as long as they were extremely careful but there was always this terrible danger that they'd side slip. Um, it was Farman who really turned the Voisin into a practical aeroplane and by then it was a Farman aeroplane. Thank you. Next question here please. Jeff Timmins, ex-NGTE Pystock. Would you comment please on the influence of the rights on Cody? You made some comment which yeah. indicated they may well, it's not direct. It's basically it's through Kappa, who who was um, who was an engineer and who went to visit the rights, as I said, on his own initiative, and was able to see pictures and examine the engine. Um, and there's, it's known for a fact that um, Kappa worked very closely with Cody on the building of uh, British the British Army Airplane Number One. Uh, the interesting thing is that when Cody was given the Society's, I think it was the gold medal, he, he protested that uh, the Wrights had no influence at all on his aeroplane. That one only has to look at the aeroplane to see that it oozes right influence, unfortunately. <laughs> I think we should conclude and go to tea now. Um, once again, let me thank um, both Ian and Philip for their lectures today. Let me remind you of Perry Pil Pil Pilcher. <laughs> and the uh, challenge of flight that Philip has recently authored. And uh, once again, we've seen somehow how our lecturers from this morning and this afternoon talk as though they were almost there at the time. Thank you very much.
Thank you.